Romans 16, 17, the word of the Lord says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught and avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent, as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You can be seated, and children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church if you're headed that way. You can go out this door, and down the hall there's a group of teachers ready to teach our young children in Children's Church. The need that we face this morning is that we reaffirm the basis for unity. The basis of what binds us together has to always be the truth about Jesus. We think that there is a tension between unity and purity. As if too much emphasis on purity, the integrity of the message of Christ, will be divisive. Now, that may be true in a moment. A hard teaching about Christ might leave some people in the short term feeling divided about the particulars of the teaching. But in the long term, the only hope for the Christian church to stay bound together and walk in love is hard truth about Christ. It's, it's the integrity of the message of good news. The title for uh, my sermon right now is for us a warning, Beware Divisive Flattery. I thought about that word flattery. It's in verse 17. That word flattery. I'm sorry, it's in verse 18. The naive are especially susceptible to division that creeps in by flattery. If I could just point attention to the garden. The devil comes to the children of God and says, no, bad things won't happen. You're not going to be in trouble. Don't you want to be more in your own eyes? And that worked. And there's this really popular version of good news. It's, it's, it's astounding that it's popular, really. But it may be the most popular version of good news in our culture, possibly. That is the version of good news that as long as you do more good than bad, you're going to be okay. So there's this theistic morality. Like, yes, God exists. 
I want to go be with him for eternity. I don't want his punishment for eternity. So as long as I do more good than bad, I can be. Isn't it appalling that that message is more popular and well-received than the message of you can't do more good than bad? Trust in Christ and be saved. I mean, really, as we sit here today, we would say, wow, how are there more disciples of the good works gospel than of the trust in Christ alone gospel? Because there's flattery in the good works gospel. The good works gospel says you can do it. So as we talk about divisive flattery, just would you keep that in mind in terms of flattery? There are things that are sold to us as humans, as people, that do flatter us because they appeal to our abilities. Even if it's more work for us, it can be flattering because it trusts in some way in us. So let's talk a minute about context. Uh, I, would take, I would take the book of Romans and put a pretty, a pretty sharp transition between chapters 11 and 12. And so we're covering this second half of Romans. Chapter 12, we could summarize as a reminder that we are to worship God. Right away in verses 1 and 2, you see the introduction of that. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Now come on. And commit yourselves as worshipers, doing your priestly worship before the Lord, right? Chapter 12. 13 reminds us that we are pilgrims now, but looking forward to the day of the Lord. Chapter 14 and 15 were instruction for us as a group of fellowship Christians about the use of our gifts and being united together in those preferences we might have that are diverse and the need we have to minister alongside each other lovingly. Chapter 16 begins with a list of people that Paul did that with. He had these companions, these relationships, and had fellowship of the kingdom. Now, those chapters remind us of some joyful chords of God's providence. Just looking back over them, it's reason to be excited. But there is a cord that binds these blessings together in the church. It is our unity in the faith of Christ. So it seems like to us as we live in, um, it, it's hard to even say that we still live in a postmodern pragmatism. Because I'm not even sure that's accurate. Uh, postmodern pragmatism um, uh, everything is right as you perceive it to be. And so as long as the end works, it justifies the means. Like, as long as the, the end result gets you to where you wanted, then whatever you believe, whatever you think. We're all going to heaven. We're just taking different roads to get there. That sort of thing. That's that sort of pragmatism. So we live in this culture that you could say, it's, it's almost becoming outdated to say it's a postmodern pragmatic culture. But it's still relevant. And it's hard for us in that culture, as a church, by the way, I would just mention that we as a church are influenced by that too, right? The church growth movement is very postmodern in its thinking and pragmatic. As long as it gets more people to come, 
It's a good idea. It's postmodern. Let's not be let's not be too dogmatic about things. Because everyone kind of beholds truth a little bit differently. And so in that context, the church comes to a sermon about not being deceived by false teaching. Having a confession of faith that binds us together. We are brought to a balance. We're brought to our center and reminded that it's Jesus Christ. Faith does not surrender itself to love, nor vice versa. Faith does not surrender itself to love, nor vice versa. These two are not functioning in opposition. Our our truth and our fellowship are not functioning as opposition. They are one and the same. So the closing instruction that we're going to look at today for the church is based in this blessing of warning that says this, watch out and what to watch for. Be careful to watch out for those people who cause division because this is the sort of thing you'll hear from them. Okay? So he gets to the end of this book. Wow. The Spirit has led Paul to just unpack some doctrinal particular truths, right? And now he gets to the end and says, okay, now, there are going to be people who are going to say different things. Be careful. So I want to walk through two points. Who are we watching for and what are we watching for, okay? I think that the Spirit has has provided us good direction. Paul has provided that, and we want to shepherd that still today. Who do we watch out for, church? Be careful, be on guard for who. And what exactly is it? that they would do. Those are the two points. Let's walk through them. The first one, who we watch for. So Paul says, verse 17 of Romans 16, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those. So that's where we get the who are we watching for. Watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. All right, so now we've got a group of people being told if someone comes in and they're wrong, watch out. Be on guard for them and avoid them. Would you just flip your Bible back to Romans 14.1? We came through two chapters that were introduced by this verse. As for someone who's weak in the faith, in 14.1, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinion. One person believes he can eat anything, the other person believes he can eat only vegetables. So don't, don't be divisive, 14.1 and 2 say. Now here we get to chapter 16, verse 17, it says, uh, there are those who are going to try to be divisive, watch out for them. Mark them and be on guard. I don't think Romans 14 and Romans 16 are a contradiction, but I think Romans 16 reminds us. Romans 16 is talking about areas of Christian faith. Romans 14 and 15, we're talking about areas of personal opinion and preference, things you enjoy doing even as unto the Lord. 16 and 17 is talking about our confession of Christian faith. Paul asked the church, he says this, watch out. He is requesting that the church be on guard. 
Chrysostom explains this in his note on this text, pointing out what I think is the accurate emphasis of this verb. Watch out! Chrysostom says this, to be exceedingly particular about, to get acquainted with, and to search thoroughly. This isn't a casual attitude, like, oh, by the way, there's going to be some dangers, just uh, from time to time remind yourself to be careful. Chrysostom is right here. Um, We don't have a lot of poisonous snakes in this part of the country, thankfully. We do have snakes, unfortunately. That is really unfortunate. But we don't have poisonous snakes. But our family had an opportunity to go out and see the Grand Canyon. Some of you have probably been there. And I was mindful at least once a day that we were in poison snake country. And I was, I was watching out. Right? I, was, I was careful where we went, what we flipped over, what rocks we climbed on. I was careful. That's what Chrysostom is saying we should be more like than just, oh, by the way, there's this casual. Like if I tell you, hey, watch out for rattlesnakes, Wisconsinites. Okay. And not that they're not in the state, but okay. But if, if you're in Arizona, I say, watch out for rattlesnakes. Oh, yeah, every day. I'm careful. I know kind of places to avoid. Okay. Paul says, watch out. And I would commend to you all of the time. Paul used this term one other time in Galatians 6.1. He only used it one other time. When he talks about Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual and have a friend who falls into sin, restore them gently, watch out, so that you are not also tempted as you walk with them in their struggle. What does it look like to watch out and avoid those who cause division? What does it look like? Well, let me just say clearly, there's, there's different answers depending on who that one is. Okay, let me give you an example of when Paul marked Peter for his divisive teaching. In Galatians 2.11, he says that when Peter came to Antioch, Paul opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Peter was making a doctrinal error, and Paul marked him as one who was causing division. And by the way, Peter was kind of causing division as one who would put an obstacle in the way of the Christian gospel. He was saying, okay, yes, it's Christ as long as you jump through this hoop. If the teacher who is miscommunicating doctrinal truth is among us, whether it's in word or deed, we ought to mark them, correct them, lovingly speaking the truth to them. We have more than that example. Aquila and Priscilla calling preachers aside and saying, hey, you made a small error here. I don't want you to continue to make this error. I hope that you get this right. However, this text is not referring to that Christian friend who needs to be corrected in an error. This text is referring to a person who is denying the gospel and, in fact, apart from Christ. You can find that in verse 18. He says, the people who cause those divisions by placing obstacles do not serve our Lord Christ. There might be uh, all sorts of false teachers. They don't serve the Lord Christ. Um, 
from time to time, we have the opportunity to share the gospel with people who are trying to proselytize us, right? That happens. Sometimes you get someone knock on your door, and they're trying to convert you to a different religion. And I uh, would commend to you not to, not to reject that opportunity. Embrace that opportunity. But on numerous occasions, I've had chance to speak with people who are Jehovah's Witness, and they're wis- witnessing at your door, and the conversation seems to deviate into what I think are distractions, like the existence of hell, soul sleep, the doctrine of the Trinity. And I don't want the conversation to go there, right? I want the conversation to be, who is Jesus Christ? And so the conversation will start to gravitate into other things, and I'll say, well, let's talk about who is Jesus Christ. Now listen, if, if that neighbor and... and I are to agree on the Trinity. What really is accomplished? If we're to agree on the nature of hell, eternal damnation, what really is accomplished if we don't agree on who Christ is? Paul says here, they are divisive because they're contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. This doctrine refers to the common stock of Christian instruction. Now, this is going to be really important here. I, for the next maybe 10 minutes, I'm just going to give you a summary of what I'm hoping to communicate in the next 10 minutes. Our church does not exist as an independent, fact-finding Christian church. Like, we're going to go and we're going to research the Bible, and we're going to come to conclusions all on our own. That's not how we exist. We exist as one moment of Christ's church. Therefore, our conclusions don't exist in isolation from Christ's church. I hope to paint a picture that I think will guard us from, I don't know why we're so, I'm, I'm susceptible to it, and I don't know why uh, a fierce independence I don't need anybody to tell me what's true. Listen, you honestly, you know how the Lord blessed me and and protects me from that fierce independence? This, what I'm doing right now, to stand up here and tell you something that's just outlandish and is gonna cause me all sorts of rebuke throughout the week and I'm gonna have to stand up here next week and apologize for it is terrifying. And so when I come to a text and see something, I go, that is, that's good, that's true. Let me make sure that's right. And I go over and I read people, a lot of dead people. And then I, I go and talk to my pastor friends and my brother elders, and we have conversations. And that's one of the greatest resources of office time. I just go around into one of the other office doors and stand there and say, hey, this and this, and I think it's that. And they say, yeah, that is true, and that's right. Okay, so I have this sense of fierce independence. But the Lord protects me from that by putting me in a really vulnerable situation of speaking what I pray is true. And, and we might also have that temptation toward independence. And so I want to speak for a moment about how we exist as Christians and as a church as one moment in the great landscape that is Christian doctrine and truth. Biblical doctrine is emphasized when Paul says, you have been taught. 
He knows that the members of this church have been taught. Therefore, any contemporary teaching whose instruction doesn't conform to what they had been taught should be noted as divisive. Keep away from it, the apostle says. So let's talk about that. Biblical doctrine, and the next word I'm going to use is a, a big word. It is not meant to be uncomfortable. It's the word orthodoxy. Um, if I could summarize, orthodoxy means that thing that is historically declared to be true. It's historically declared to be true. Okay? Before us, this thing was said to be accurate. Okay? So biblical doctrine and orthodoxy. Now, as very independent people, we tend not to talk a lot about orthodoxy. Because who frankly cares what the church a thousand years ago thought? We are smarter than they are, and so we know more. We have Google, right? In fact, that should be the very evidence of the fact that we're in danger. We often get a lot of doctrine from Google. So let's talk about some texts that tell us that Paul commenced us biblical doctrine in the context of orthodoxy. So Paul writes his final letter to his young mentor, a man named Timothy. And Paul's kind of writing his pastoral will to Timothy. Listen to a couple things he says. In 2 Timothy 1.13, 2 Timothy 1.13, Paul says to his young protege, his young mentor, Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that is in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells with us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul says, follow the pattern. That's similar to orthodoxy. If you came to church today and say, I just found something in the Bible no one's ever seen before. No, you didn't. You weren't following the good pattern that is entrusted to sound doctrinal teaching from generation to generation as it's illuminated by the word of God. He says again later in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, What you have heard from me, teach other people. That's not what it says. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful people who will be able to teach others also. Um, So I'm going to present something. Uh, it It is a trick, so just beware. Okay, there is this perception we have, and you might, you might hold it right now, where the best Bible study is done, you and your Bible alone at a table, you're just figuring it out on your own for the first time. And that seems admirable. You're like, yeah, that's the way this works. Think about what you're doing right now. You are not doing that, right? We have what Paul calls the presence of many witnesses in the way we live as a church, the preaching, the Sunday school classes you just came from. These are all biblical voices affirming the truths of Scripture to us in all sorts of contexts. The fact that you came to church this morning is an appropriate confession that you're not trying to discern Scripture in isolation. You're doing it as a group. And Paul says that. Paul says, the apostle says to Timothy, I taught you things, and I want you to go teach them to other people. And here's how he commends it as worth teaching to other people. He says, the things I taught you as other witnesses affirmed true, 
those things are worth repeating. You see that? That is biblical doctrine in the framework of good orthodoxy. This has been established true by more than just my independent assumptions. Christian teaching given to Timothy had been verified by the testimony of many. Therefore, Paul says, go and keep teaching it. Paul was concerned that the correct traditions about the gospel would be transmitted from one generation to another Christian generation. He references that in 1 Corinthians 15.3. Tradition in gospel teaching was an important part of what Paul was doing. Now, this first point is who do we watch for? Those whose doctrine divides us. Look at verse 17 again. Mark those people. Watch out for those people who cause divisiveness, division, by what? Establishing obstacles. Establishing obstacles. If we were to set up here in the back parking lot this morning an obstacle course, and we're all going to line up, and we're going to run through the obstacle course. Now, I mean, guys like Josh and Matt, I mean, um, um, Josiah, there would be a serious divide between them and me, right? I mean, they would be done sipping the afternoon coffee, and I'd still be climbing over the first obstacle. When we set obstacles for us as Christians, like, okay, as long as you run through these things and do these good Christian deeds, then you're, you're, you're on the right course. Some of you would do so much better at that than some of us. And it creates division between us. So this person who creates division is setting up obstacles for Christians to jump through in order to feel successful. I would say to you, and I, I wanna, I'm going to end this point and move on to the next one. Teachers that place obstacles in the way of someone who had confessed that they would live in Christ alone should be avoided. We should watch out, like we would watch for a rattlesnake at the Grand Canyon, for people who teach there's something Christians have to do in order for Christ to be okay with them. So I, maybe some of your minds are already saying, mention Galatians. So I will. Galatians 3.1, Paul shares the gospel of Christ. Good news, Jesus saves. And then there's a church who's like, yes, that's true. And now what should we do? Sing about it. <laughs> but no, they don't. Oh, foolish Galatians, he says in Galatians 3, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by working the law or hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having started by the Spirit? Are you now being conformed by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? 
if indeed it was in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Who do we have to watch out for that bewitches us, casts a spell on us, by saying, yeah, 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 sure, your place in heaven is because of Jesus, but feeling like you belong there is because of you. That's subtle, right? And therefore really dangerous. But Christian friend, we cannot adopt a secondary gospel to Jesus Christ. Jesus saves, and now my good works makes it worthwhile. Please guard yourself from that. Like you're climbing a cliff at the Grand Canyon, and you hear the rattle. Because it's just, it's just that dangerous. It's just that present. Who to watch out for? In church, I would say, even if it's me, anyone who ever erects an obstacle as if good Christian conduct or identity requires you to accomplish something to be acceptable by Christ. If, if we set up an obstacle course of doctrine or Christian faith or good works, some of you will run so far ahead of the rest of us, it's impossible there won't be division. Okay, that's who. There are people that come and say, hey, just do this. And can you see why that's flattering? Because, I, I, I'll pick on you again, Josh, just um, because I, I think this fits with you. If, if we tell Josh to run an obstacle course, he's going to do it well. And when he gets done and I'm still struggling, isn't it going to make him susceptible to saying, wow, I like obstacle course Christianity because I'm good at this. Right? And, it, and it's, it's going to be appealing to those who are most proficient at accomplishing it. Some of, some of you have just lifelong sin struggles. And some of you don't. Some of you have these moments of temptation. You resist it. You go to the next thing. You have another moment of temptation. You resist it. And for some of you, you think... Am I ever going to be free from struggling with this? Is this going to be a battle every day? And for the person who exhibits great discipline, obstacles are not problems. They're expressions of their achievements. But let's watch out for that. Okay, watch out for the obstacle. Let me tell you what the obstacle looks like. Because you're picturing the obstacle course up in the parking lot. Like you're picturing big round bales. Like walls you have to climb up over. Little tunnels you have to crawl through. Okay, let's talk about what the obstacle course is. Okay, I can tell you specifically what is this obstacle course. Let's go to our second point. What we watch for. So first is who, those that set up obstacles. What exactly is that? Verse 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the heart of the naive. 
This is such a, I mean, it's just a clear picture of false teachers, right? They're working based on what they want. They're good at it. And they deceive the hearts of the naive. The false teacher might not even adhere to a particular false doctrine, but just choose to avoid talking things that might be unsettling. In other words, sometimes smooth talkers just avoid hard things. Ooh, some people aren't going to like this, and I really want to be liked, so I'm not going to go down that road. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. The word flattery is the word eulogy. That doesn't sound like it's going to end well, does it? In the moment, that sort of well-put argument about doctrine makes everyone in the room feel better about themselves, but at some point we're going to be reminded that there is the stench of death in it. Paul might have had a bunch of different groups in mind, but he's guarding the church. Their smooth talk or their plausible speech would attempt to seduce the minds of those people who were not aware. They were naive. Peter spoke of false prophets who would exploit the church with stories they made up. Listen as I read from 2 Timothy 2. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensualities, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. We know who to watch out for. What exactly is it? What exactly is it? What is the obstacle course? Peter refers to it here when he says they deny the master who brought them. Paul refers to it. Look at verse 18. They do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ. This is preaching that commends the potency of delivery rather than the subject matter of Jesus. That's smooth and flattery. To say, look how well put together my delivery is. Don't you want to do the things I instruct you to do? Instead of, look at Jesus Christ. So Paul and Peter both refer to this being the thing that is an obstacle. It's Christlessness. Not devoid of Christ, but just Christ. Lessness. The gospel itself is the good news of Jesus. Mark 9, 38. John said to him, Teacher, I saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he's not one of our camp. And Jesus says, don't stop him. No one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after to speak evil about me. 
For the one who is not against us is for us. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus teaches his disciples they don't have to belong to our church, but they do have to belong to the emphasis of the gospel that is Jesus. So I want to warn you about what the obstacle course looks like. Maybe some of you feel like you're, you're running an obstacle course. And you're not very good at it. And so I just, I just want to shepherd you in light of all of that effort to see Christ as the one who saves us. If your confession sounds like self-reliant moralism, then you too are in danger of denying the master. Self-reliant morality. Uh, I'm going to take a minute to tell you, this past Wednesday, we're teaching through the book of Genesis in youth group. And I was teaching about the death of Abraham and then uh, Isaac and Rebekah. And if you remember, there's a sin Abraham commits. He stretches the truth by saying Sarah is his sister. And then, tragically, a couple chapters later, you see Isaac, Abraham's son, does the same thing. Now, there's a, there's a moral lesson there. That moral lesson sounds like this. Parents, be careful what you do because your children will excuse their actions based on what you do. That's moral, right? Maybe even a little wisdom in that. Like, be careful, your children are watching. That's true. But, where's Christ in that? Where's Christ in that? Listen, all the good behavior in my home won't save my children. And so there's this really subtle Deny the one who saved you. Moralism, that's flattering to me. I love my children. I want to have a lifelong positive influence on their spirituality. I want to help by being a good dad. And in all that good intention, I could deny to my children the one who saves them. That's the obstacle course. Like parents, be on your best behavior. I'm serious. No, no angry responses. No bad TV shows. Your kids are watching. And what do we do when that happens? What's the obstacle course we're running? It's the one that says, yes, Christ exists. That's why I can be a better dad but it doesn't actually commend Christ to my kids. It makes me feel like I'm not very good at obstacle courses. There is this Christ-less obstacle. Watch out for those teachers who set up obstacles. What are the obstacles I should be watching for? Anything that says you should do more because Christ was just the start. 
I can't help but go to Philippians 2. It's not in my notes, but it's a verse that's meaningful to me. Would you go there with me? Philippians 2. Because I will be honest with you. I'm just going to speak as one Christian in the long road of sanctification. Um, Verse 12 used to scare me a lot. Philippians 2, 12. I was scared of this. And I remember nights, friends. This is just me being honest. There were nights where I, I would lay in my bed unable to fall asleep. I was terrified because I didn't seem like I was saved. I didn't feel like I had believed enough. I wasn't sure I had confessed correctly. And I would be 10, 12, 14 years old and scared of hell. And I grew up in church. And so I heard verses like this one. And this one stuck with me for some reason. I don't think anybody had done an injustice that made this verse stick with me, but it did. And this verse, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, oh, wow, okay, bar is high. So now, not only in my presence, but even when I'm not watching, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I was like, oh, man, I'm not always and definitely not when people aren't around. I shouldn't sleep. What's at the end of that? Like I learned English and found out that's not the end of the story. There's a comma. For, oh good. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And Paul says, the promise of the new covenant is fulfilled in you. And in that truth, listen, we're all susceptible to someone coming to us and saying, You look like a really good obstacle runner. Here's my obstacle course. Ready? Go. And we jump in like, yeah, I probably am a good obstacle runner. And we get like halfway through the obstacle and find out the tunnel was only this big. I've got a serious problem with a tunnel to crawl through that's this big. Don't be divided. How would I summarize that? Church, be on guard that you not adopt different opinions about how much work Christ requires of you to be happy with you. Be on guard that you don't believe that the same Christ who gave his blood has kept something good back from us and now requires our sanctification by effort. Um, Just a way to pastorally protect us. I'm not going to use the terms, but for those of you who know the terms... Because the terms are going to be dangerous, okay? So if I use the terms, someone's going to Google the terms. Someone's going to find a bad teacher who uses those terms, and it's going to be discouraging to someone. So I'm not going to use the terms. 
the same way God alone is our Savior, God alone is our sanctifier, okay? Now, I want to say that clearly because I don't want us to ever live in confusion that we have this divided teaching. The same way God alone brings us from death to life, God alone brings us from sinfulness to saviorness, okay? Sanctification, justification, they're happening the same way with the same ongoing dependence on God to do them. There is a deposit of faith, Emmanuel, that is handed down to us and entrusted to the church. We are not independent from doctrinal truth. We are a moment in doctrinal truth, Lord willing. Watch out to avoid the division of false teaching. That false teaching looks like this, diminishing our dependence on Christ and suggesting there are some obstacles we're responsible to navigate if we're to feel free from condemnation and have lasting hope in Christ. So I would finish with where we've already been. Romans 16 is just telling us, don't forget the doctrine. And the doctrine is this, Romans 8.1. There is now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ. If you're in Christ, that obstacle course is irrelevant to you. That jump through these hoops to earn your salvation is irrelevant to you. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Later in chapter 8, who can condemn those who are in Christ? Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised from the dead. He is now at the right hand of God. He is indeed most definitely interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can anything, can any required obstacle course, can any failure to be good at obstacle courses separate us from the love of Christ? Not if it's God who works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. Jesus prayed for you the night he got arrested in the garden. And he prayed to God for you that you would be sanctified by the word of truth. Not obstacles, not hurdles, not effort, not hard work. That you would be sanctified by the word of truth. He prays for us. Let's pray to him. Father, thankful for the truth about caution because my my human pride is such a fertile field for planting seeds of my own effort I, I have God an instinct to roll my sleeves up and get the things done I think have to be done And Father God, if I let the truth of my soul's eternal rest be defined by how good I am at Christian religion, then I'm like the church at Galatia that saw Christ truly And then turn from that to the labor of the law. This warning is 
a blessing to those who have come to Christ and needing to cast the efforts of the law on Christ, to take on the yoke of Christ, to rest in Christ, to delight in Christ, to perceive Christ, to worship and walk in steadfast joy in Christ. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the moment that we are stewarding this doctrinal reality of Christ. I pray that by your spirit and by the truth of your word and by the blessing of historical orthodoxy, you would find us faithful at this moment. In Christ's name, amen.